Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Most of us have a personal connection to cancer. It kills 1,600 people a day in our country. A personal connection, the loss of his son, led then-Vice President Joe Biden to lead a cancer moonshot in 2016, aimed at reducing the lives lost. And just last week now, President Biden relaunched the effort to reduce the number of deaths from cancer by at least half over the next 25 years and to improve the lives of survivors and their families. Today, where we live, what lessons can we learn from the fight against cancer? It's the focus of the book, A New Deal for Cancer, Lessons from a 50-Year War. It's a compilation of essays from leading professionals who touch, quote, cancer land in some way. How can the country, including the government, healthcare providers, and the private sector, work to do a better job in prevention and achieving better outcomes for all cancer patients. We want to hear from you, too. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at Where We Live. The book's editors join us now on Zoom. Abby Gluck is professor of law and faculty director at the Solomon Center for Health, Law, and Policy at Yale Law School. She's also a professor of medicine at Yale. Abby, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having us. Also with us on Zoom, Dr. Charles Fuchs, Senior Vice President of the Global and Global Head of Hematology and Oncology Product Development at Genentech in Roche. He's also an adjunct professor at Yale. Charles, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you for inviting us. So, Abby, I'll start with you. When we think about the lessons learned in this 50-year war, now 51, since uh, Nixon's National Cancer Act of 1971, uh, talk through um, what prompted this book. Well, thanks for that question. So, um, as you started with, you know, Charlie and I both have personal connections to cancer, close family members who suffered from cancer, and we're also in the cancer space. Charlie is a leading physician, obviously, and I'm a lawyer and I do health policy and have for a long time wanted to be involved in the cancer space to think about law policy institutions beyond the science, what we can do with all aspects of our national culture to address the disease. I approached Charlie about this about six years ago now uh, to talk about how we could collaborate. And we looked around and we really saw that there had not been um, thinking through this issue in the way that we would like to do it. Uh, we had the largest co cancer conference in Connecticut history to start to explore these issues. More than 700 people came from across the nation. Uh, and the book grew out of that. And it's our effort, as we say, to explore everything beyond the science. The science has been spectacular. Uh, the silence has given us the luxury of thinking bigger and thinking broader. And this book is our effort uh, to take a 360 degree lens uh, to how cancer touches every aspect of our legal and policy and healthcare system and think about how to approach it from that broad angle. 
I mentioned the National Cancer Act of, of 1971. Uh, back then, uh, the claim uh, to find a cure for cancer uh, five years after the launch. Uh, one critic has said the idea of curing cancer was like landing a man on the moon without understanding the laws of gravity. So when we think about the moonshot and what now President Biden has relaunched, uh, you know, walk th us through some of the challenges. Uh, Charles, I'll go to you. Absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the the goals of the War on Cancer Act, as it was in 1971, certainly were audacious, perhaps unrealistic, right, that we would eliminate cancer by the bicentennial or five years later. But there's a big difference then and now. One is we've made a lot of progress over the past 50 years in terms of our ability to prevent, treat, and understand cancer. But where we stand now is really unprecedented compared to where we imagine it. The issue then, which is not the issue now, is we now have a much greater understanding of the biology of cancer, of the susceptibilities, that cancer is not one disease, but hundreds, perhaps thousands, defined by various characteristics, including genetic drivers. And we have the tools to particularly target those unique genetic susceptibilities of cancer. And I think the pace of progress is much greater. The goal that President Biden set forth to cut the death rate by 50% over the next 25 years, I think is realistic. You may have heard even some people think that the goal should be even more audacious. But if we can overachieve that, all the better. But we're in a much better place now to make that kind of progress. Abby, did you want to uh, also uh, respond to that question? Because when we think about uh, the people that are um, unfortunately dying today from cancer, uh, the disparities that still exist. So when we look at the next 50 years, thinking about how to uh, make sure that uh, treatment and care, including prevention, reaches all populations, because that's not happening uh, equally. Thanks for that. You read our book. Uh, and so uh, you're hitting all the notes that we want to hit. And so, you know, what's really interesting about the renewed moonshot that President Biden announced last week, last week is that it's already different from the Obama-Biden the Obama -Biden cancer moonshot that happened in 2016. That was an effort to really bring together the private and public sector, break down fragmentation and galvanize coordination, cooperation uh, and speed. Um, what President Biden has done now is different. And I think it's informed by the work he's done in the COVID space. He's taking a much broader approach to the problem, um, very similar to the one that we take in this book. So as you hit on, there are a lot of things that the National Cancer Act did not address in 1971, whether these issues were uh, not on the radar screen or, or whether the science just wasn't advanced enough to give us the luxury to consider them. But Healthcare disparities is a huge issue, one that COVID has shined a bright light on, but that which has always been there. Um, we have intolerable healthcare disparities in cancer that are largely caused by inequitable access to screening, prevention, and treatment. Um, there have been some really interesting experiments uh, in cities like New York and states like Delaware, where a targeted emphasis on prevention and screening um, in underprivileged populations has eliminated disparities. Um, so. This particular moonshot effort is focused on that, as well as many other things. You mentioned prevention. Um, you know, one third of cancers is they are preventable. Uh, we spend a very little percentage of our health policy budget on public health and prevention. Tobacco and obesity are huge predictors of cancer and predictors of cancer that fall disproportionately on 
populations of different socioeconomic status, the next 50 years has to be more focused on prevention. We can talk more about that, Lucy, if you want. Just to give you one other example in the same vein, you have to think about health insurance, right? In 1971, you know, Medicare and Medicaid were just six years old. Today, we have the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act has made great strides in providing insurance to millions more Americans. And lack of insurance is a very significant predictor of poor cancer outcomes. But yet, we have more work to do. We've got 12 states that haven't expanded Medicaid to their low-income populations. That's millions more people who don't have access to insurance and so won't have access to quality cancer care when they need it. You're hearing Abby Gluck here on Where We Live, professor of law and faculty director at the Solomon Center for Health Law and Policy at Yale Law School. She's also a professor of medicine at Yale and editor of this book, A New Deal for Cancer, Lessons from a 50-Year War. Uh, co-editor Dr. Charles Fuchs is with us, senior vice president of global and global head of hematology and oncology product development at Genentech and Roche. So let's talk more about the funding, uh, Charles. Uh, when we look at this uh, relaunch of the cancer moonshot and uh, as Abby mentioned, you know, a lot of the uh, money is not being spent on prevention. Why is that? That's a great question. And it's it's something that I've committed my career to is, you know, when Abby approached me, I was during my tenure as uh, director of the Yale Cancer Center. And, um, you know, I think we, as Abby said, we wanted to take a holistic view. Really, over the history of the past 50 years, we've really underspent on prevention. In fact, we spend about 3% of federal investments into prevention. And yet, in fact, in cancer, probably the greatest impact we've made has been in prevention, in diminishing tobacco use, among other things. We clearly have a long ways to go, even within Connecticut specifically, we need to reduce tobacco use. We need to address the issues of obesity, about exposure, to environmental uh, carcinogens, as well as vaccination for HPV. And so we need to advance prevention research. And I think that is a focus of the the White House initiative. And we need to ensure that we uh, advance prevention equitably. One other really important issue beyond primary prevention is early detection or screening. We clearly underutilize that. That's a particular issue with regard to disparities in underrepresented populations. As well, COVID has had an impact. During my tenure at Smilo Cancer Hospital and Yale Cancer Center, and this was a national phenomenon, in the first several months of the pandemic, cancer screening declined by 80%. We have a lot to catch up on. And in fact, some of the gains we've made in reductions in cancer mortality may be diminished as a result of this pandemic and something we have to catch up upon. That stat you share is really troubling. And I think Abby, uh, Congresswoman DeLauro hit on that in her essay that I believe uh, you were also involved in. So can you talk more about uh, what Charles shared? Yeah, so um, in our joint chapter, uh, we talked about sort of both of these points that Charlie made. One is uh, the fact that, yeah, people did not get their routine cancer screenings during the pandemic, uh, both because people were locked down and because uh, in many places uh, access to non-essential health services was delayed. And um, 
at the time from in many states, uh, screening was considered a quote, non-essential service, but of course it's very essential. And one of the things that President Biden actually mentioned last week when he renewed the moonshot was a focus on this catching up. Um, the danger is that uh, even if we do catch up, detection is made later in the progress of the disease. And obviously the later one is diagnosed when it comes to cancer, uh, the more likely it would be that the cancer has spread and you could be diagnosed at a later stage. I think they call this upstaging, but Charlie can um, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, and we obviously do better when detection is early. I did want to add on to one other interesting point from a lawyer's perspective, and that does touch on my chapter with Congresswoman DeLauro that Charlie mentioned about the amount that we invest in prevention. This is a great statistic and one I'm obsessed with. Um, the CDC's entire budget, right, the entire budget um, for the 2021 fiscal year um, is basically the same amount as the amount we spent on cancer, right, cancer alone. This is the entire budget the CDC has, basically, which is a number that is enormous, that includes the pandemic, that includes everything that we have going on. Um, we don't invest intervention. For Congress, it's also a problem with the way we score bills. Legislation has to have a budget score. It has to be neutral when it comes to uh, the budget deficit. Prevention is investment today for gains tomorrow. And as we point out in our chapter, that's unattractive sometimes from a budgetary perspective because it's hard to score prevention effectively, even if down the line it's going to save us a ton of money. At the moment it passes in Congress, it costs money to invest in prevention. That's a disincentive that's a pathology of our legislative process that we really need to correct uh, if we want to be sure to invest in prevention going forward. We're talking about a new deal for cancer lessons from a 50-year war. I wanted to take a quick call from a listener. Bud's calling in from New London. Bud, what did you want to share? Hi, uh, this is Bud McAllister, a partner in Healthy Communities, New London. Uh, I started my organization in 2010 uh, when Father Emmett from uh, St. Francis House and 11 other people I'm either close to or principal in one of the organizations that I work with were all diagnosed with cancer within uh, 30 days of each other. And uh, I think that that's probably mathematically impossible, but it happened. So, uh, Charles, uh, when you hear uh, Bud talking about, um, you know, starting partners in health communities after 12 members of the community were diagnosed uh, so closely together, I understand uh, that's still active and, and still working to mobilize the, compu the community. Uh, what does that mean when you hear that and the idea that patients are self-mobilizing, how it impacts both the treatment process for them and survivorship? Well, I think you raise a number of issues, as does the caller which is on the order of about 40% of Americans are ultimately going to develop cancer in their lifetime. So, you know, this is a very common ailment um, and it touches the lives of our neighbors, our friends, our family members. And as Abby and I defined in our uh, opening of the book, we both have had family members affected. So, you know, hearing that so many people in the community are affected, that certainly is not altogether uncommon. It's disturbing. It certainly raises a concern about is there something in the community? And that's something obviously should always be investigated if there are a cluster. But at the same time, you know, there's just so many issues that you ask about, Lucy. And I'll focus on one in particular beyond treatment, which is survivorship. When uh, President Nixon, Nixon signed the War on Cancer Act, 
At the time, we were approaching curing one in three Americans with cancer. We're now curing more than 60%, still inadequate, but we're better. And as we continue to get better, we're now finding more people who are survivors of cancer, who still have issues, health issues in particular, social issues, financial issues. And we have to address that. In 2030, we'll have almost 25 million cancer survivors in the United States. And we have to make sure we care for those individuals, that we have the infrastructure to do it, to provide their long-term needs, because cancer is not simply the treatment process, which is important. It's also the process after treatment, how we help people acclimate following that emotionally, physically, psychologically, financially. And uh, we need to have the resources to be able to deliver that. That's Charles Fuchs, Senior Vice President and Global Head of Hematology and Oncology Product Development at Genentech and Roche. He edited the book, A New Deal for Cancer, Lessons from a 50-Year War, as well as Abby Gluck, who's with us, Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Solomon Center for Health, Law and Policy at Yale Law School. We'll continue talking after the break. What questions do you have about the next 50-year fight against cancer? You can join us, too. Eileen tweeted, on behalf of my friend who died from breast cancer recurrence in 2016, I know the provision in the Affordable Care Act to cover pre-existing conditions was essential to her survival. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The science of cancer has advanced significantly since the National Cancer Act was first signed in 1971. But how will the country work towards fewer deaths and equitable treatment and care for all Americans over the next 50 years? It's the focus of a compilation of essays in the book, A New Deal for Cancer. With us are the editors, Abby Gluck, professor of law and faculty director of the Solomon Center for Health, Law and Policy at Yale Law School. 
and Dr. Charles Fuchs, Senior Vice President and Global Head of Hematology and Oncology Product Development at Genentech in Roche. He's also an adjunct professor at Yale. Uh, Abby, when we talk about the contributors in this book, you know, the, the book starts with Pulitzer Prize-winning physician Siddhartha Mukherjee, who writes about how we as a society live in, quote, cancer land. So let's talk more about that, this state of hypervigilance uh, with advancements in science and the consequences. Yeah, so Sid's chapter is a really powerful way to begin the book. Uh, it frames sort of where we are now, that the advances in the science have ironically brought on new kinds of anxieties. For many of us who have relatives who've had cancer, you know, we live in a state of fear that it'll happen to us or a state of surveillance, as Sid puts it, uh, in the sense of getting routine diagnostics yearly, you're in, you're out, especially if you're at risk for particular cancers. So there's a trade-off between the science that we have advanced uh, and the important benefits of early detection uh, with this sort of constant state of being under surveillance or feeling like we're all going to be targets of cancer in our lifetime. And how we manage that, how we manage our scientific advancements advances with the anxiety that comes along with those screenings is really important. Uh, that chapter focuses on a couple of things for us to think about for the next 50 years. Among them are the dangers of over-treatment. Um, too much screening might lead to uh, over-treatment for diseases that otherwise wouldn't have been treated. Then, you know, I myself worried about equity. I think we're going to see new disparities issues. Uh, the more preventative screening there is, the more early detection there is, it's going to open an access gap between people who have and people who don't have, unless we simultaneously are laser focused on making sure that those advances are available to everyone. Charles, I wanted to get your take on, on the cancer land chapter as well, and this uh, state of hypervigilance uh, that we are now part of in our society. No, I think Sid's observations are really important. You know, as I mentioned earlier, this no one is immune from this. We are all at risk. And just as one account, narrative, one anecdote, you know, my career has principally been focused on both the research, treatment, and care for patients with colorectal cancer, a very common disease. And it's something that I, I really focused on, both clinically as well as research, and a number of years ago, at a relatively young age, my wife, Joanna, was diagnosed with colon cancer, uh, which is, you know, ironic given it's my life's work. Now, fortunately, she's done well and she's a proud cancer survivor. But you really do see the other side of it as opposed to a practitioner when you have a loved one with it. And as part of that process, what we also learned over time was that my wife and her family have not one, but two cancer susceptibility genes. And this is increasingly the case. I think what Sid really alludes to as we continue to understand the genetic risk factors, as we expand genetic testing, we're gonna all learn that we have certain lifetime susceptibilities. And so how do we deal with that, both in terms of delivery of prevention and medical care, as well as the psychological burden of these things? Deborah from Watertown wanted to share this comment uh, with you both. Uh, her ex-husband died a few months ago at 62 from colon count cancer. 
And she writes, absolutely one of those cases where regular screening didn't happen due to COVID and had some symptoms, one of the many preventable deaths due to COVID. Uh, Charles, did you want to respond to what we shared? Because I think earlier we also hit on the point that uh, there uh, is right now no incentive to diagnose, but the incentive is to treat. Yeah, well, I want to offer my condolences to Deborah and her family. And, you know, we hear these stories all too often. Colon cancer is preventable. Um, we know that uh, colonoscopies work. They're not, they don't detect every cancer, but they can reduce cancer mortality, colon cancer mortality by up to 75 to 80% beyond other things. And in fact, you know, the other aspects of prevention really apply here. We don't uh, do as good a job in ensuring that we deliver effective prevention for colon cancer, as well as the other major cancers, lung cancers and others. We need to do a better job. We need to make sure it's accessed. We need to help uh, patients uh, get it. You know, there are efforts to make uh, colonoscopies covered by insurance, but we still don't do a good enough job making sure that everyone gets it. You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Abby, the book also looks into the economics of cancer, so the growing lack of access to small physician-owned oncology practices as more venture capital hospital-owned practices are created. Let's talk about the impact on the quality of, of patient care and also the cost of care. Yeah, those are great questions, and the book tackles those um, in several different ways. So, you know, one interesting statistic is that the about 63% of American patients are treated in a community cancer setting every year. So basically, a lot of people have access to local cancer practices, but many people have to drive more than an hour to get to a major cancer center. And, you know, we're just talking about prevention. I also want to really extend my condolences to Deborah and her family. You know, having access to an oncology practice is essential for getting quality care if you have cancer, but also getting screening and detection uh, and treatment uh, on the early side. So we have a landscape of a cancer business where we are losing um, many of our small practices uh, to the economic pressures of consolidation. Uh, and the danger is that people are not going to have a local oncology practice near them. Uh, our authors argue that everybody should have a community practice or a local practice nearby, but also have access to the expertise that major cancer centers like we here at Yale have to offer. And, you know, with the advent of telemedicine and more sharing of electronic health records, there are ample opportunities for community practices to work closely uh, with those national cancer centers when patients need more than the community centers can offer. At the same time, we have a fascinating chapter by Dr. Ed Benz, who is the head of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute over at Harvard, where he talks about the economics of the cancer business for those big cancer centers. And he talks about this phenomenon of cross-subsidization, which he describes in the following way. We are over-incentivized to charge lots of money for the big services like scans, surgery, chemotherapy, but a lot of the value that these cancer centers offer are things that don't pay very much, whether it's palliative care, whether it's research, whether it's second opinions. Um, so the way we pay for cancer care doesn't make much sense. If we decide to say slash drug prices like everybody in Washington wants to, we have to think about the ripple effect that might have 
on the services right now that those high drug prices subsidize, whether it's a second opinion, whether it's research, whether it's palliative care, whether it's other social services that these cancer centers offer to patients who need them. So we have to think about the system holistically. The one more thing I'll add about pricing is that pricing was not a major topic of discussion in 1971. We didn't have um, the various different health problems programs we have in place, and we didn't have this national pricing conversation that we're in today. But today we do have a national healthcare pricing conversation underway, and we are thinking about ways to move away from fee-for-service, where doctors get paid for every procedure, uh, economic incentive that increases the desire to perhaps prescribe those procedures, to uh, payment that covers the whole course of treatment, the whole course of care in a coordinated way, and that thinks about outcomes. And as we move toward those more modern theories of payment, it's going to be interesting to see how cancer comes along for the ride. I'm curious that your take, Charles, as the former director of Yale Cancer Center, as we hear Abby you know, describe the current reimbursement system and how it's deeply flawed. Yeah, I think it's it's an important point that our colleague Ed Benz makes, which is in our, our ability at, at Smilo Cancer Hospital and Yale Cancer Center and our centers across the state, our ability to deliver the comprehensive care that patients need. And I don't mean simply the doctors and nurses. I mean nutrition, social work, physical therapy, among others. To do that, we really have to be creative with our accounting. Namely, yes, certain aspects like procedures, CAT scans, uh, drugs get paid for, but we don't get adequately reimbursed for all those other important services, including emotional and physical services, nutrition. Um, And to do that, we need to make sure that we're properly reimbursed for those others so we have the ability to use those dollars to cover. I would also add our ability to deliver clinical trials and research are subsidized by those dollars. Now, I think what Ed Benz points out is let's let's have a more rational approach to funding cancer care so that we do adequately cover those important things like social work, nutrition, the ability to access clinical trials so that we can truly deliver the promise of comprehensive cancer care. I'm really proud of what I did during, and we all did it during my tenure at, at Yale and Smilo, I think, You know, we've really tried to make sure that every patient gets access to comprehensive care as well. We've really wanted to make sure that we create centers within the community so patients have access to that kind of comprehensive care. But it's a stretch sometimes to ensure that we have the dollars given the current methods of reimbursement. Uh, You mentioned Ed Benz. Again, that's the former CEO of Dana-Farber. So when we think about uh, the the high cost of of these drugs uh, for treatment, can we also talk about, you know, the the process for research and development and and how I believe in this book there was, uh, again, um, focus on how at times this can also be costly and ineffective. There's also redundancy there, uh, Abby. Yeah, I'll start with that answer. And then uh, Charlie's obviously working in this space, so I'll let you hand it to him. Um, From the lawyer's perspective, you know, what the book offers on this point are several. One is this idea that um, in the federal government, there is a lot of redundancy. There are a whole bunch of agencies that overlap in the cancer space. Uh, Rich Shelsky, um, a doctor who wrote our chapter on agency fragmentation, makes a couple of great points about this. And one of which he says is, why not combine the process of FDA approval of a drug and 
Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services decision on how they're going to cover the drug so that when a drug is approved, wouldn't it be nice if you knew if it was going to be covered by insurance? That's one way in which you can have that kind of collaboration. Uh, the Biden cancer move, moved job from 2016, incentivized a couple of really high-profile collaborations across departments, like the Department of Defense with the Department of Health. Uh, those can be very effective. Um, in other aspects of the book, in the context of R&D, we've had our authors talking about using the power and the purse of the federal government to de-risk early stage R&D, which is really expensive and really hard to get off the ground, make it less risky for companies to try a lot of things in the early stages uh, so they can put their efforts into later stage development. I'll let Charlie talk about that. And there's one other thing that the current moonshot is highlighting and that our book also highlights is that, you know, there are a lot of cancers that are rare and that don't affect a lot of people. And as we move into an era of precision medicine where cancers are many and more specified according to genetic makeup, there are gonna be more and more cancers that affect fewer and fewer people as we define them. And we're gonna to have to find a way to incentivize companies economically to develop drugs, even if those drugs are only going to target a small number of people. Congress has a role to play there in providing financial incentives and other incentives. Um, to make sure that those kind of drugs are developed so that all kinds of cancers are treated. Before I go to Charles, in the book, I believe what you're just talking about related to um, childhood cancer and the development of drugs and treatments there, Abby. Yeah, that's one example. We have a wonderful chapter from a pediatric cancer advocate, Nancy Goodman, who lost her son to cancer and as an attorney. Uh, she's devoted her life to uh, creating uh, legislative incentives uh, through Congress to get companies to make pediatric drugs. So one of her uh, past legislative acts was a statute that actually gives drug companies a voucher that lets them kind of cut ahead of the line the next time they make a different drug, if they develop a drug for the pediatric population that might not be as lucrative. Uh, so Charles, I wanted to get your take on the R&D process and you know how to make it uh, you know more effective because we know it can be pretty costly on the front end. It's very costly, and it frankly needs to happen quicker. That is our ability from taking an initial discovery in the lab to a patient, to delivering a drug to a patient and getting approval is something we need to accelerate. And I know that all agencies are working on that in conjunction with industry and the academic community. But it's something that, as Abby said, we, we're, we are too fragmented. And, I, and I'll just give you one example where fragmentation is an issue. We generate reams of data in the care of patients with cancer, as well as the conduct of research. But they're all siloed between hospitals, academic institutions, industry, research centers, among others. You think about the power of what internet and social media companies do and everything they know about us. We're sitting on a gold mine of data across the United States. That is, we would be able with a, you know, artificial intelligence and other means, we could find those needles in a haystack just looking at the treatment and uh, natural history of cancers of patients across the United States. That's our laboratory. And I think in Charles Sawyer's and colleagues in one of our chapters actually discusses the need to enable legislation such that we can pool those data and ensure that researchers have access to find those insights. 
Uh, we got a, a comment from a listener on uh, Twitter who wrote, uh, please help bring, I believe it's an URSO to clinical trials. I believe that's related to breast cancer. So the public really pushing for new advances, Abby. Um, so let's talk about that um, from what, you know, the public wants to see and, you know, and, and how to um, get that in, included in this um, efforts for products in the fight against cancer. Yeah, we have, um, you know, the public, cancer advocates have had a historic role to play in cancer process. The 71 Cancer Act is by and large credited in large part to the efforts of a woman named Mary Lasker, a very famous cancer advocate. And in the book, we tell the stories of many members of the public who've had instrumental roles in raising awareness for certain cancers and pushing Congress and the private sector. Uh, to make strides. Sherry Lansing, the famous entertainment executive, lost her own mother to cancer. She's one of the co-founders of Stand Up to Cancer. They've given hundreds of millions of dollars to fast-paced collaborative cancer research. I told you the story of Nancy Goodman. Uh, and there's another story in the book about a different group that has used social media to raise awareness for certain kinds of cancers and certain kinds of trials. So the message is that you, the public, you know, have a very important role to play, have always historically had a role to play in, in elevating these issues. There's one counterpoint to this that I'd just like to acknowledge, which is another debate we discuss in the book, which is that there's always this question about whether we want to focus Congress's efforts on cancer as a whole or on specific cancers. Uh, you don't want there to be a fight among cancers, different cancers fighting for different kinds of money, especially because there's valuable research that benefits many different kinds of cancers across the board. There's a balance between raising awareness for a particular kind of cancer and trying to fund the cancer space as a whole. Um, obviously, people suffering from particular cancers are going to want to raise awareness for their cancers, and that's understandable and important to do. It's just important to think about the balance. Charles, I'm going to end with you. Uh, you know, before we head to break, we talked about the new cancer moonshot. There's a lot uh, in this book that you and Abby edited uh, for uh, people to consider uh, when we think about progress needed with the science of cures, but progress with the people and institutions that also make up the system. And, and so, what do you want to see in you know the next couple of years uh, in this progress? What are some next steps? Well, I think it's it's in part collaboration across academic institutions, hospitals, industry. And I think we're seeing more of that. But as well, I think we need to make sure that we focus on the right questions. You know, there are two great examples. One was the Human Genome Project, where, you know, we had a very focused project. We were determined to sequence the entire human genome, which we did over a long period of time, but done. And now that technology is routinely available. But so many insights were gained from that understanding. And so those kinds of projects, which I think are essentially part of the Biden and White House initiative, those are the things we want to focus on, figure out what are the high risk, high reward projects that will be transformative and to ensure that we are all working together to achieve that goal. That's Dr. Charles Fuchs, again, Senior Vice President and Global Head of Hematology and Oncology Product Development at Genentech and Roche, editor of A New Deal for Cancer, Lessons from a 50-Year War. Thank you for your time today, Charles. Thank you. And the other, other editor, Abby Gluck, Professor of Law and Faculty Director at the Solomon Center for Health Law and Policy at Yale Law School. She's also Professor of, of Medicine at Yale. Abby, thank you so much for your perspective today. Thanks for having us, and thanks to all the callers who called in and commented.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to talk to Project Access New Haven about how it works to improve screenings and treatment in communities that see many health disparities. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We know the government plays an important role in helping save more Americans from cancer, one of the leading causes of death in our country. In the new book, A New Deal for Cancer, Lessons from a 50-Year War, Connecticut Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, also a cancer survivor, writes that Congress should be guided by knowledge that many Americans will be diagnosed with cancer at later stages because of missed or delayed screening caused by the pandemic. With that in mind, we wanted to talk about a local model that focuses on prevention, on screenings, and also treatment in communities that see a lot of health disparities. With us on Zoom is Giselle Carlota McDonald, Executive Director of Project Access New Haven. Giselle, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to learn more about the work uh, that you and your team are doing in the greater New Haven area. I understand Project Access arranges for donated care from specialists for patients in that region. So let's talk about the community um, and how you help them get treatment and screenings for cancer. Thank you for that question. Um, so just to give you a little background of Project Access, we were founded by providers from a uh, local pro- providers here in New Haven uh, that saw a gap in the area where the uninsured population with access to specialty care. Uh, so they jumped into action and they started a nonprofit that it's known as Project Access New Haven. And they followed a, a model that was developed in 1996 in Asheville, North Carolina. And as you mentioned, um, it follows the volunteer provider network model. Um, and I also wanted to mention that at the core of the service at Project Access, we have patient navigators and community health health workers uh, that support the outreach and support the navigation to patients with access to specialty care um, and also access to screenings. Also, when we think about the community you're serving specifically, many or all are uninsured, Giselle, and we heard earlier from our other guests, when we think about outcomes, you know, access to insurance, that's how you're going to you know, survive and, and beat uh, cancer most likely. And so let's talk about some of the challenges you're seeing in the community. Yes, it's, you know, as we, we all know, uh, the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States is the medical expenses, right? So insurance, um, even though after the Affordable Care Act, what we've seen is that uh, there are still individuals that are un- uninsurable. Um, and there's also still individuals that uh, don't know that they may qualify for insurance. Um, so we start first with addressing the barriers to care, access to care for those uninsured patients. Uh, most of the referrals come to us from the federal, federal qualified clinics in the area and in partnership with the hospitals, uh, Yale Medicine, the providers in Northeast Medical Group and also private practices. What we do is we coordinate donated care for these patients that are being referred to us as having an urgent need. Um, as well as our patient navigators are able to identify when a patient has uh, may qualify for insurance. So we're able to also 
uh, help them with their enrollment through Access Health CT. Um, and, you know, just to share a little bit more about what we see when we talk about barriers. Um, and it was a great conversation to hear about, you know, with all the research done, what we continue to see is uh, not only financial barriers, um, insurance, uh, through insurance, but also, you know, the emotional support that patients may have, uh, especially when it comes to cancer screenings and when they're diagnosed. Uh, so a lot of what, what our team, what the navigators, the CHWs, the community health workers do is work with each patient to address the, the barriers that we see. Um, and it could look from um, access to healthy food, um, access to transportation before and after an appointment, um, also reminder calls, right? Because the patients that we serve might have stress that they're uh, dealing with, not only about uh, through the cancer diagnosis, but also life stressors. Uh, so being there for the patient, uh, provide an emotional support, um, and also language barriers. We have a large number of patients that we serve that are only monolingual in Spanish or other languages. So making sure that they understand the information that they're being given by the providers, by the, the clinicians. Uh, so we, we act as, as that linkage in between the clinical team, the social workers, uh, pharmacists, and um, just being there for the patients and also being there for the clinicians. You bring up some important points because when we think about regular screenings, okay, uh, so one of the things that people need to do is, or need help with is scheduling a screening, but it may not even be that simple for, for some because it depends on, you know, the type of job they have. Can they get away uh, from work for a couple of hours? And as you mentioned, transportation and childcare, it's, it's, it's complicated depending on a person's situation, Giselle. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I call it the peeling the onion, right? So working with the patient to understand all the different uh, needs, because uh, it's usually not one, but many. There's a complexity of social needs, emotional needs. Um, you know, a lot of our patients are unable to take time off from work because that's their only source of income. So working with them and the providers to see when, if there's any clinics uh, in the evening hours, weekend hours to help the patient uh, get to those appointments. Um, and also, as you mentioned, uh, just making that phone call can be very, very uh, challenging. Um, you know, I, I remember a, a time that I, I helped someone in out in the community uh, that she let me know that she tried to schedule um, a mammogram and she, she was having some challenges because the person on the other line only spoke English. Uh, so I, I made that call with the patient um, and I was able to schedule um, but there's so, so many uh, patients just like this case that, you know, it could be a language barriers. It could be that they don't have the time off from work um, or they're not insured or they're afraid of the copay or the cost for that appointment. Um, or they're just afraid because they're misinformed. So also providing accurate information about the screening process. Um, our patient navigators are able to provide information about how to prep um, and what to expect before a screening, um, and also what to expect if there is a diagnosis, and what is the next step. And that can help with the fear and anxiety before an appointment. So what have been the outcomes that Project Access has seen in, in the greater New Haven area uh, when we think about, um, you know, is this model uh, available in other places in our state, Giselle? 
Great question. So one outcome that we like to highlight is our no-show rate. So we know that most vulnerable populations, uh, patients uninsured and underserved, usually are known to have a, a higher uh, no-show rate. And with this model, we have throughout the 12 years that we have been in existence, we have had a 3% or lower rate of no-show. And that's uh, thanks to the coordination and the efforts from the patient navigators and working with the patient and also working with our providers and scheduling those appointments uh, when it's best for both the clinician and also for the patient and also supporting with transportation, making sure that they can get there. So it's not just scheduling the appointment, but also helping them get there through information of, of how to, you know, bus transportation or also providing free uh, taxi rides. So uh, we have a partnership with M7 uh, and they're able to support our patients if there is a, a need for transportation. Mm. Uh, we mentioned at the top that you know this is donated care from specialists uh, for patients in the greater New Haven uh, area. So can we talk about just briefly the kind of care they're receiving uh, through uh, this donated care, Giselle? Because we hear so often about the backlogs uh, caused by uh, the pandemic and people having trouble even getting appointments. Yeah, there's so many barriers and, and there's definitely an impact uh, post-COVID. Uh, so we did see during COVID that the challenges with getting patients in uh, into being seen on time. Uh, so in 2020, 2021, we spent a lot of time advocating for the patients that we saw that needed a timely access to appointment. Um, and it, it it's all thanks to the collaboration and coordination that happened uh, with our team. We have an RN patient navigator manager that also advocates when there is a patient that needs a dire, you know, uh, needs access to to appointments uh, sooner than later. Um, we do, um, you know, recognize that this this is all thanks to the partnerships that we have with the hospitals, with the clinics, um, in in making sure that we advocate and for these patients to get access in a timely manner. And you know, just to put a finer point on this, without the work that you and your team uh, have been doing, when people need care, their other option would be the ER, Giselle. That's correct. Uh, our founders uh, uh, created and, and started this this program because of the gap that they were seeing uh, in the greater New Haven area with access to specialty care. And the gap that we're trying to address is the the you know avoiding the the ED the emergency department. Uh, visits. So these are patients are likely to either delay the care, have a longer wait for appointments, uh, and eventually they would end up in the emergency departments. Well, Giselle Carlota McDonald, thank you so much for coming on to talk about the work uh, that you are doing, you and your team. Giselle's Executive Director of Project Access New Haven. We appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujatha Srinivasan. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. You can listen to Where We Live anytime. Just download the show on your favorite podcast app. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>